thanks for being here. I'm Stephen Barton, and this is Migrant Odyssey. At the heart of this series is talking to refugees and migrants. But it's also vital, I think, that we can situate the entire issue both at a global and individual country level with people who deal with refugees on a daily basis. And one such person is my guest today, Peter Roenstrott Bauer. He's head of the UN Flüchtlingshilfe, the NGO which partners UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, in Germany. There are other equivalent NGOs, and they operate in countries including the US, Argentina, UK, Japan, and Switzerland. Before joining the refugee agency in Germany, Peter was a radio journalist, a politician, and a senior official in the German government, his last post being permanent state secretary in the Ministry of Family, Senior Citizens, Women, and Youth, as the Germans put it. Peter responded really quickly and warmly to my invitation to appear on this podcast, and our dealings with him throughout have just been so straightforward and unbureaucratic, something that in my experience, at least with large MGOs, is, how shall I put it, extremely rare. So I'm more than happy to welcome Peter to give us some global context on the subject, as well as on some of the specific issues in Germany. Peter, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Peter, what is the prime function of your organization and how does it relate to UNHCR? UNO Flüchtlingshilfe is a German NGO and uh, our relationship as the national partner of uh, UNHCR is to support UNHCR's life-saving work worldwide and secondly uh, to support projects and initiatives in Germany which special have a special look to uh, refugees in Germany so uh, these two parts and the third part is information information facts instead of fake news about refugees worldwide situation and stories about refugees mm -hmm. so there's the project part of it there's almost there's the fundraising part of it is that right and also the sort of setting the the scene putting refugees in context and so that people can actually become much more familiar with what's going on yeah exactly and the communication is one of the main parts of our work because if uh i want to have money from the donors i have to explain why they should give us the money and not the colleagues from uh, unicef or other organizations and if i explain it and, and if i get the money then i have to explain why we give it to unhcr for ukraine or afghanistan and not for yemen or syria and then uh, the third uh, communication point is to explain how uh, does it work in the country the donation and how is the work of UNHCR so communicating about refugee situation communicating about the support and the work of UNHCR and supporting the different uh, worldwide missions and also here in Germany mm -hmm. 
Okay, that's that, that's clear. Interesting that what you mentioned there was that when you raise funds uh, and you're given funds, you're given funds. I assume sometimes specifically for a particular country or specifically for a particular project. Is that correct? It's so necessary for UNHCR to have unearmed money. So if a donor gives us 100 euro for uh, Syria uh, or Syria situation, we have to invest it in uh, UNHCR Syria. And we ask for unrestricted, unearmed money because UNHCR needs uh, money all over the world and all over this uh, different missions. How many people are the estimated to be forcibly displaced in the world today? At the end of last year, more than 108 million people worldwide were forcibly displaced as a result of persecution, conflict, violence. Concrete, more than one of 74 people on Earth has been forced to flee. And that's really a big, big number. Now, more than 110 million people were displaced, and no one knows how the situation will develop, for example, in, in Niger, or what will happen in the Sudan in the upcoming months. So uh, the result is that the conflicts for example, in Congo or Sudan, widespread violence in Myanmar and persistent insecurity and drought in Somalia are growing more and more the number of forcibly displaced people worldwide. Mm. Does that include internally displaced people? Because as, as yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, for example, I have been in Ukraine in, in the beginning of the year, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine caused the fastest and the largest forced displacement crisis since World War II. With other emergencies and climate-driven uh, events pushing the figure over this dramatic milestone of 110 million, I have been in Lviv, for example, in the west of Ukraine, and every day there came a uh, train from the east of the country with internal displaced people, mostly elderly people staying at their homes and waiting whether they can protect their homes. At the end, they came in security in their own country. Mm -hmm. So... You were talking about a lot of people. The biggest rush was from the Ukraine recently. But what's the proportion of people? Where do they come from and where are they going? Is, is most of them from Africa, most of them Middle East? Where are we talking? Where do they come from? Where do they go? Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting question because uh, in the uh, public debate and in Germany, it's going stronger and stronger. Some... Uh, right-wing politicians and announcements are everyone does want to come to uh, Europe and Germany. And uh, I have to be clear, people do not want to go to Europe in the first place. Most of them flee with their, uh, within their own countries, as we said, the IDPs, internal displaced. And in the second step, people flee to neighboring countries. 
What many people are unaware is that more than half of all refugees and people in need of international protection came just from three countries, Syria, Ukraine, and Afghanistan. And this is very, very uh, important because over 75% are hosted in the closest neighboring countries, such as Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan. And uh, I was two years ago in Jordan Camp Azak and spoke to many refugees. Yes, they are in Jordan now and have protection and safety, but they want to go home as fast as they can. Everyone I spoke said, yes, I want to go home. It's interesting, isn't it? So many are now long-term refugees. I know we talked about the Palestinians, but also... In Kakama, who our listeners will know uh, where Dendak Maluel came from, people have been there for 20 years in, yeah. in, uh, in Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh, where the refugees there have been there for 30 years. I mean, one of the yeah. people I interviewed there said he'd never seen his country. He'd never seen Myanmar yeah. Uh, because he'd yeah. been there for 30 years. So a lot of what you guys are dealing with are, are really long-term refugees in many ways. Yeah. All the parents, the refugee parents I spoke, they said, don't look to me and my wife or my husband. Look to our kids. They need perspective. They need education. They need to organize their lives by themselves because they know that they are in a very long time in this safety and protection, but in a refugee camp and not uh, at home. One of the things I, I was thinking about when I was first started this whole podcast on, on refugees is that the US and certainly North and South America, Australia, much of Europe was actually built on migrants and migrancy people, you know, both refugees and migrants who, who, who were either forced to go across to, to the US as slaves or actually went in massive waves in uh, to the US in the 17th, 18th, and 19th, and even the 20th centuries. And, you know, we in Europe have had uh, waves of migrants as well. What is it, do you think, that makes people feel so nervous about refugees, who after all people fleeing in fear and fleeing huge hardships of war, of weather, of climate, of poverty, etc. What do you think it is that makes us so frightened? And it is fear, I think, frightened of yeah. people coming to seek refuge. Yeah, they don't know. And, and so it's so important to explain and to have facts because Many of the uh, guys in civil society, they don't know what is helpful for our society. And they forget that uh, many migrants came to this country to build it up. And if you don't look in a humanitarian perspective to this, and I think uh, it's absolutely necessary to look in a humanitarian perspective, but if you look in an economic perspective, then you know that, for instance, in Germany, we need every year 400, 
thousand new workers in our market that the economy is growing in the last uh, 40-50 years. So the society getting older and older and we need these also. So from the humanitarian perspective, it's clear and from the economic also. Yeah, that's a, that's a very important point you make. It's a very important point that we need them whether we like it or not. We need new yeah. additional people, especially in a society that's aging and is not growing in that sense. You're absolutely correct. Could I ask you, what typically happens to a refugee once they arrive in Germany? And I assume it's similar for the EU. I mean, are they allowed to work? How are they housed? That sort of stuff. And how ro yeah. what role does your organization play vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the, uh, the German government and the, the federal or the state governments? The discussion and the advice and the role of uh, discussion with the politics, that's the role of uh, our colleagues in Berlin from the UNHCR representative office. But uh, uh, we are dis uh, we are in discussion with civil society, and what happens if uh, a refugee once arrives here in Germany? Refugees who concluded their asylum procedure entitled to asylum or with uh, subsidiary protection status are allowed to work in Germany unrestrictedly, but who concluded their as asylum procedure. Persons who are tolerated means not acknowledged uh, for the asylum status, but whose extradition is suspended can get a work permit if they are in Germany already for three months and don't have to live in a reception center any longer. If they still have to live in a reception center, they will get a work permit after six months. But this is for the refugees coming from abroad. There are special situations for refugees in from Ukraine. You know that the European Union has a special law for this situation and the U Ukrainians can come to Germany and then they can work at, from the first day. If they want, they can start it to work from the first day. And was that law and created specifically by the EU for the Ukraine situation? No, it's after uh, 2015, 2016, the European Union countries discussed its so-called, in German, Massenzustromrichtlinie. It's... It's a lovely word, yes. <laughs> so yes. Yeah. When a big, big number of people came in a very short time. Yes. And uh, now, uh, in the case of the Russian invasion, it was the first time that they allowed this law and activated this law so the Ukrainian can come to all neighboring countries, uh, Poland, for example, was very good, and also to Germany. So this law covers, is this correct, a mass uh, refugee problem 
yeah. from within the continent of Europe or can it be from yeah. anywhere? Yeah. From, yeah. from within the continent. Yeah. Is the whole thing about getting asylum status, is that quite complex? Does that take a long time for people? Uh, do you find people, in other words, waiting, I don't know, months and months and months for asylum status? Or is that quite quick, it's quite efficiently processed in Germany? Uh, I think it's going better and better. But it could be a little bit quicker, but it's going on. And the colleagues from UNHCR explain and advise uh, the officials from the government to help them that this procedure is getting better and easier for the asylum seekers. And Germany, is that, tell me if this is correct, I assume Germany doesn't have this problem of massive backlogs that, as we, we've both seen, the UK has at the moment, where they, they're housing yeah. them in hotels, they're housing them on barges or trying to house them on barges, and there's this huge backlog. I assume Germany doesn't have that issue, does it? We have the federal states of Germany, and the asylum seekers will be distributed over the urban and the rural districts according to their population numbers. Yeah. And it was really a problem uh, in 2015 and 2016, because no one knows. But now, when uh, the Ukrainians came, it was organized and very well done by the federal states. And they, they are housed mainly in the communal accommodations. Right. Can I ask a question about, you said earlier on that one of the things is, is this, the reason for fear, the reason for the anxiety that is caused inside and all this political upheaval, is, it's caused by, by refugees, is ignorance, both on a humanitarian basis and also an economic basis. How much work is your organization and organizations like you it being done in in education, in, in schools, in informing schools and informing the community. How much work is done and how much work can be done? And would it make a difference, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think it makes a really a big difference. And we are looking for partners all over the country, for example, all around uh, World Refugee Day in, uh, every year in uh, June 20th. So, for example, we are uh, together with the Booksellers Association and UNO Flüchtlingshilfe and the Booksellers Association, they partner for two weeks and in every bookshop you have special tables with information and literature about and from refugees. So, we think education is one of the main topics for changing the narrative uh, from the nationalists and the right side in the uh, public discussion, changing the narrative by listening why and how people have to flee and why they come and need protection and safety. And is there a move to sort of present information to schools and how willing are the schools to let you in? Yeah, we, we, we have a special program and our communication team, there's uh, one colleague responsible for schools. And so we have, uh, for example, exhibitions 
and we uh, rent them. And then they give the information to schools with the exhibition. And sometimes I'm in the schools via online, for example, uh, to discuss with the pupils about the situation. So schools are one important part, but not only. It's not only the schools, it's, it's also remembering of uh, the older generation what happens to them when they were three or two years old and were in the east side and had to flee to the west side of Germany. So their stories are also important to change all of this narrative that everyone wants to come to Europe or everyone wants to come to Germany because they can tell what happens when they were kids and they had to flee with their parents. Yes, in fact, I was just thinking when you were saying that, of course, that Germany probably since the First World War has yeah. been hit by people being moving, you know, being being internally displaced as well as externally displaced for much of the 20th century up until the early 50s. And of course, then after the, the war came down. So yes, there's been a huge amount yeah. of, of movement. So you're right. Yes. The, the actually history, isn't it? The way we teach history and getting people to remember our own our own history is, is, is very, very, very important. Much of what seems to be the approach, the EU approach, both as individual countries and as a body, both in the EU and certainly in, in Britain, is a policy of let's just keep them out. Let's just keep as many refugees out as possible. Is that policy sustainable? And is there an alternative again, in your view? Yes, the EU uh, countries are discussing at the moment, the interior ministers, they're discussing how to organize people coming to Europe and give them the refugees, give them and asylum seekers, give them security, secure and give them protection. And I think that the situation in the EU is really, it's a big problem. The Mediterranean Sea, we have everyday tragedies taking place on our doorstep on a daily basis. And uh, there are a lot of open questions. Now we have this discussion again. And Filippo Grandi, the High Commissioner of UNHCR, said, yes, it's the first good step that all governments are sitting together to discuss. But we have to see that there are standards of solidarity, humanity, and also the standards of the Geneva Convention and we will see what the uh, European Parliament will have as a result on this standards for the situation in Europe. Okay, that's good to know. You'll be visiting, going on a tour, won't you, in September? And uh, part of that will be a visit to Kakuma in Kenya, where our first guest on this podcast, Dendak Maluel, comes from. 
could you tell us something about what the purposes of your tour, about the purposes of your visit, and have you been to Kakama before? Just give us a bit of background yeah. on what you'll be doing. Yeah, no, I, I haven't been. It, it's the first time that I'm in Kakuma, and UNHCR organizes for us the UNO Flüchtlingshilfe and my chair, and also the other eight national partners this visit to see how the mission financed also by civil society from this nine national partners to see how it works and how necessary the donations are. That's the same when I came to uh, Jordan or to Ukraine, because I have to report and our donors want to know what happens with the money and uh, with the donation and how does it work in these uh, different crises and situations. Where can people listening to this podcast find your organization and what's the best help that you would expect from them, if you like? Would it be donations? Is that what you're looking for? Yes, information and donation, both. Most of the people, they want to know what are the facts. And we inform on our website, for, for instance, or via social media or our own podcast, we inform about the situation and if you are informed, the result is, yes, you say, I can help. And when I was in Jordan, young boy came and put me in his tent and showed me his, it was like a mattress on the ground. And now he is, he can sleep on this mattress and not anymore on the ground. And he came and put me in and showed to his new mattress. And I say, yes, 10 euro. You can change life with 10 euro. It's so wonderful. And everyone who is informed and know the facts, he decides, yes, this wonderful work from the colleagues from UNHCR has to be supported. That's a great story. Thank you very much. And finally... How can this podcast series be helpful to you, apart from talking to you and talking to refugees? Are there other ways that you would hope that this podcast series on refugees and migrants could be helpful to the whole movement? Yes, it's the understanding of the situation of the people who are forced to flee. And it's wonderful that you don't speak, that we speak today, but you don't speak alone about, you speak with refugees. And that's a second important point. And I think it can help to change the narrative because you inform and have different perspectives on this challenge. And it's important for all of us. Peter, thank you very, very much. That was lovely talking to you. And thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening. This has been Migrant Odyssey. I'm Stephen Barton.